This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. When I was a child, uh, I remember uh, Christmas morning. Uh, we would get up early as children. I was one of three children. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. And we would wake up, and whoever was first to wake up would then go in every other room and make sure the rest of us was awake. And they would shake us very violently, I mean gently. And they would remind us, it's Christmas, it's Christmas, it's time to wake up. And we would get up uh, as I got older, and I was again the oldest. My youngest sister was the one who made those rounds. And especially as I became a teenager, uh, it was harder and harder to rouse me early in Christmas morning. And yet she would always remind me, get up, get up, it's Christmas. And we would go sit at the top of the stairs in my parents' house, and we would wait. We would wait uh, for them to go downstairs and make the last preparations for Christmas morning. Uh, I found out later as an adult, we were actually waiting for them to have their last cup of coffee and their last moment of quiet before Christmas morning began. And we would wait until they said, finally, okay, it's time to come down. And then we would rush very quickly uh, from the top of the steps to the bottom with our parents constantly reminding us, don't knock over your brother or your sister or there will be no Christmas. Uh, Our kids have continued some of that tradition. Uh, My wife and I are fortunate because our kids sleep late, even on Christmas morning. Uh, They will sleep till 7.45 or 8 o'clock sometimes. And now we find it's us going into their rooms, shaking them gently, very gently, and reminding them, it's Christmas, it's Christmas. And as they get up, they get excited, and they will also go sit on the top of the steps, waiting expectantly for what awaits them uh, underneath the Christmas tree and in their stockings. Uh, We are also cruel parents, and that the very first thing that they do when they get down there in the morning is not get to open any presents for themselves, Uh, We have a present that they have to open first, uh, and it is a little baby Jesus. It's a pewter baby. I think we have a picture of a nativity scene. It's a pewter baby Jesus, uh, and they've gotten to the point now where they argue every year of who gets to open it and who gets to place it in the manger scene. I think they keep track every year who got it last year and who got it this year. Now, I'm not sure that fighting over baby Jesus is the purpose of Christmas, (laughs) but that's what they do. They're actually here in the back right now. They're pointing at each other saying, it's my turn this year. No, it's my turn. They're actually debating right now in church over who gets to open that present. And then we make them wait a little longer, and we read the Christmas story together. And we read and are reminded of the reason that we pause on Christmas Day to celebrate the birth of Christ. Now, I will give them credit. They have chosen the shortest and most illustrated version of that story. Uh, But we do pause, and we remember. Uh, This season for us in the church is a season of Advent, is the season where we sit on our figurative steps in our pews and our homes and we wait. We wait for Christmas. We wait not for what sits under a tree, not for presents that belong to us, but we wait for the promises that God offers us on Christmas morning. We wait expectantly for the things we talk about in the Advent wreath, for hope, for joy, for love, for peace. That is this season for us. And while our children must wait only a few minutes most Christmas mornings, we wait for four weeks. And while culture has already begun to turn and sing Christmas carols and change music stations to Christmas all of the time, and the stores in which we shop are playing Christmas music over and over again, 
we still pause and we wait, expecting the message that comes on Christmas morning. That's what Advent is all about. Uh, Todd and I often joke as he prepares to lead us through worship this season uh, that we're not allowed to sing Christmas carols until Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. We sing them Christmas Eve night. Things like Joy to the World or Silent Night or Holy Night. And we wait for that time to sing them. And it gives me a hard time because in the hymnal, the the section that has Advent music in it is only three pages long. (laughs) He says we can only sing you know, these songs like one time before we are out of all the songs for Advent. He says, O come, O come, Emmanuel only works like, we can't sing it every Sunday, can we? But we do pause intentionally because we know that part of our task in this season is to look forward in anticipation of the gifts that God brings us. Again, not gifts that you can find under any tree, but gifts embodied in the people of God. Gifts of love and hope and peace and joy. And so that's where we are this season as we begin uh, this Advent together. And what we're going to do for most of the season is hang out in the book of Luke. And we have gone back and talked about what it would look like for us to come to this season. And we believe, as we do most years, it's not always the most important season to be creative or be super uh, like nuanced or have these great stories of Mary that no one's told yet, but really to go back to the core of our belief and tell the core stories that make up our faith. And so that's what we're going to do the next four weeks, is we're going to continually go back to Luke's gospel and be reminded of the stories that build the foundation for who we are. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, or if you want to open a pew Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to finish this morning uh, with verse 46 and the Mary's Magnificat. But I want to begin by sort of setting the stage for where we are in the story. Before we get to Mary's response, before we get to Mary's worshipful response to what's going on, earlier in Luke chapter 1, what we find is that Mary has been approached by the angel Gabriel. Um, Before that, her relative, Elizabeth, uh, we don't know if it was a cousin or an aunt, uh, but her relative was also approached by Gabriel. Last week in this space, we talked about Zechariah's response and how they were very old. And Elizabeth heard this news from Gabriel and looked forward to the birth of her son John. Zechariah heard this news and did not believe the angel and said there's no way we could become pregnant. And as we shared last week, uh, he became mute for nine months. I think it's one of the great miracles of Scripture for all those who have been pregnant before, that the husband could not speak for those nine months. And he couldn't speak. And last week what we talked about was Zechariah's response to the birth of his son, and we went through his song and his praise. Before we get there, Mary also is visited by an angel. And in verse 21 or 26, we see the angel come to Mary and share this news that she too would become pregnant. Now, as you know, Mary was not married yet. She was engaged to Joseph, and she was waiting in this period of engagement for the time to come when they would be officially married, when they would become, when they would live together and they would begin a life together. And the angel comes and says, before that happens, you will be with child. And so she listens to this, she responds to this, and then one of her first responses is to go to be with her relative Elizabeth. And so in verse 39, this is where that begins. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah, 
and greeted Elizabeth. Steve, I think we have a map. If you want to show that map. So where we are is in the top part of this map, on the top of the river, Jordan, you have Nazareth, where Mary is. It's outside of a city called Sepphoris. It's a small town. A Nazareth was about 100 to 400 people at that time. A Sepphoris was several, several thousand. And so Nazareth served as that uh, sort of outskirts, a suburb of the, the city of Sepphoris. And then an eight to nine day journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem uh, to a, a place called Ein Kempf, which is where uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah lived, is where Mary was headed. And what she would have done is she would have journeyed with a group of people who were headed down that path and just sort of caught up along with them. And so for eight to nine days, she would have traveled with this news. And so she gets to Elizabeth's house in verse 40. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, that is John. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. If you are a Catholic or grew up in a Catholic family, you'll recognize this as the second half of the Ave Maria. In the first half comes from verse 24, where it says, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord be with thee. And then blessed are thy among women, and blessed is thy fruit of your, or the fruit of thy womb. This is the passage we come back to to remember who Mary is. And in verse 43, And why has this happened to me, Elizabeth asked? That the mother of my Lord comes to me. For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And then verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will, be called, will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, according to that promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with, remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Every time I read this story, I will often ask myself, how might I have responded if I had gotten news like Mary had gotten? How might I have responded or how might my family have responded if, if we were in the season of preparation and our lives were disrupted the way Mary's life was disrupted? If our plans had been set in front of us and, and somehow God had intervened or something had broken in and changed those abruptly. You know, one of the things that I get the joy to do as a pastor is engage in premarital counseling with couples. And so we go through a process of, of talking about what it looks like uh, for not only the wedding, but the day after. I tell couples all the time that my interest in their, in their wedding, in their marriage, is not in the wedding day itself. It's not to make their wedding day perfect, uh, but it is for the day after, for that Monday or Tuesday to follow, that their marriage would begin well. Now, most brides look at me and say, but the wedding day will be perfect, right? <laughs> 
And we begin this journey where we meet four or five times in anticipation of a wedding, and we talk about the many things that will lead up to and prepare them for a healthy marriage. And one of the things that we do is that I have them build a calendar. It's sort of a life calendar, one for the first year, uh, one for the first five years, and then for the first 10, 20, 30 years out, as they begin to lay out uh, what they expect their life to look like as they enter into the season of marriage. Everything from the first Thanksgiving when they go to be with family, whose family will they visit? Uh, I've discovered that when you make that decision early on, that's a pattern that is hard to break, and so make it well. Whose family they'll be for Christmas, and then how they divide their time among those places. And then as the years go on, maybe what jobs would look like, or when they might have children, or all the decisions that life might bring. And then we talk about the different things that would make that calendar possible. Everything from budgeting, How will you manage your finances? How will you make plans to buy that first house or uh, to go on that first major vacation or that 10th anniversary trip or whatever it is that you're planning for? We talk about communicating and how you communicate well, how to fight well. I say all couples, all healthy couples, learn how to fight at a very early time so when harder times come, they're ready for them. I talk about how to love well. Talk about the love languages that people have and how to, how to love each other in those spaces. And then I have them pull their calendar back out, their life map back out, and tear it up. And I say to them, the only certain thing about this is that it's not right. <laughs> no matter how much we plan, no matter how much we look forward to what's possible, the only thing that is certain is that change and disruption will enter into the lives we're about to enter into together. We know that to be true. Our plans, no matter how perfect they are, no matter how much planning we put into our finances and our communication and our jobs and our careers, we know that change and disruption will come. We know that no matter what we try or how perfect we are, we cannot control that future. There will be pregnancies that turn into miscarriages. There will be relationships that are broken. There will be jobs that never pan out. There will be times when our children make decisions that we can't control, nor do we know the outcome of them. There will be times where our job or career begins to shift, or we're called to move to a different place abruptly and quickly. There is always the reality of disruption. And the question we have is not will disruption come, but how do we deal with those disruptions? How are we prepared to make sure that when those disruptions do come, our foundation is strong enough for us to engage in life at that point? I tell couples the reason we talk about how to fight well is I want them to fight over the things that don't matter and learn habits now of how to fight over things that are insignificant. So when those significant times come, they're prepared. Talk about how to prepare for their finances and things that don't matter and small decisions so when the hard decisions come, they're prepared. And in all things, we talk about how to love in the small times and in the simple things. So when the hard times come, we're prepared. And so I ask myself again, when Mary's disruption came, when her plans were laid out, when she and Joseph were preparing to get married, when they had seen the whole life ahead of them, how does she respond? And she responds this way. And I think it's very important for us this morning. She has hope not because her plans are perfect, but because there's a perfect God that's always been with her in the past, in the present, 
and she trusts for the future. This is what Mary says. I'm going to read from the Magnificat again. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Notice the past tense. Every verb in here from now on is past tense. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. For Mary to have hope for the future, she has to look backward. Mary's future hope, when she expects hope, it is founded on the promises of the past. God has been faithful. God has shown up. God has been present. God has always been there for God's people. And therefore, because I know God has been present before, I know God will be present for the future. The reason that our kids sit on the tops of those stairs on Christmas morning is partly because they know their parents have something waiting for them at the bottom. But they sit with anticipation because year after year after year, that has come true. They know by looking back into the past, the promises their parents make today are true because they've seen that promise delivered over and over and over again. In Romans chapter 12, which John read this morning, in verse 4, it says this, I'll read it from there. In Romans, Paul writes in Romans 15, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness, steadfastness and by the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The reason we tell these stories over and over and over again, the reason we share the stories of Mary and of Jesus, the reason we talk about Elizabeth and Zechariah, the reason we come to God's table is because and by being reminded of the scripture that has been told before us, by being reminded of our history and our story, we can have hope. It is only in these stories, it is only in God's past faithfulness that gives us certainty for the future. My hope and my challenge and invitation for you this Christmas season is that as we return as a church to these basic stories of our faith, that you would not let them simply come in one ear and go out the other as a familiar story that we just continue to tell as a cute time this time of year. But may these stories be foundational. May these stories be a reminder that when time was at its darkest, when people of God had little hope, God broke into this world and brought light in the form of a child in a manger. In that small light, in that small town, outside of Jerusalem, called Bethlehem, we found the hope that we shared then, that we share now, that gives us hope for the future. That is our prayer, that is our foundation, that is our future. It's in God's name, in God's Son, Jesus Christ, we have our hope. Amen.